Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, William Happer. Uh, he's the Cyrus Fogg Brackett Professor of Physics Emeritus in the Department of Physics at Princeton University. And we're going to talk about uh, climate science and the uh, politicization of climate science and what the real deal is. So, William, thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, if you would tell me a bit about your background, you know, you were in physics. Uh, how did you move over into uh, thinking about climate? Like, what's, what's the story there? Well, one of my jobs uh, many years ago was to be the head of basic research at Department of Energy, United States Department of Energy. And so I had a big portfolio of research. It included plasma physics, high energy physics, you know, material science. Uh, some geophysics, and, and some work on climate, you know, so there were many areas. Uh, and to make sure I understood what we were paying for with taxpayers' money, I had someone come in every week to give me a seminar and my assistant directors a seminar down in Washington. And uh, I found that very helpful. You know, if I got questions from Congress, I was able to answer it with a lot more confidence than if I hadn't done that. And uh, that's when I first noticed that there was something different about climate uh, research, environmental research, I would say, and all the other research I was supporting. So, for example, uh, when we would call up someone and say, you know, come down to Washington in two weeks and tell us about the progress looking for the top fork at Fermi Lab. And they would be delighted to come, you know, very happy that someone in Washington was interested in what they were doing. and hoping, of course, that, you know, they'd get even more funding next year. <laughs> or someone would come in and tell us about um, progress on the uh, human genome project we were supporting. Uh, at that time, we were busy uh, learning how to sequence uh, DNA uh, more quickly and more cheaply. And so people who had contracts to do this were just delighted to come in and, and explain why they were making so much progress and how they would make more next year if they got a little more money. And uh, 
the big difference was that when you would contact someone in environment or in climate or something like that, they would say, well, uh, we, um, you know, we work for Senator Gore, we don't work for you. And then I would have to point out that, well, they, you know, you have this DOE contract and one of the requirements is that you, you know, brief program managers at Department of Energy. And uh, if that's not what you want to do, that's okay with us. We, we can take the money back and uh, you can go with someone else. And then they would grudgingly come, you know, and they would give a very defensive seminar. And uh, unlike other seminars, when you would ask a question, you know, the speaker would be delighted that you were showing some interest and he would answer your question. And um, when you would ask a question of these people, they would say, what, don't you trust me? Why are you asking that? <laughs> and I say, well, how else are we going to understand if we don't pay attention and try and ask questions about details that'll help us to understand it? So anyway, it was clear that back then sense. that this was a this was not normal science. <laughs> well, it sounds like it wasn't even science at all. It was just um, it was just politics based science. I don't even know if you can call it science. But again, keep going, please. What else did you notice about um, what was coming out of uh, you know? climate scientists' assertions or papers or, you know, what else did you discover? Well, I, some of them, uh, it was clear, were very intelligent people and they could have been good scientists if they had uh, just stuck to the science and uh, not worried about the political implications of it. So uh, I, at that time, at least, I had no doubt that uh, these were potentially competent people. As the years have gone by, I think that uh, the I've had a hard time getting young people to get into the field who are really good, you know, because uh, you know students can sense a field that is uh, highly political, and usually they go into science because they're really interested in science, not politics. You know, if you want to do politics, you can go, you know, to a political science department or do law or or, or something else like that. But but uh, if you want to do real science, you'd like to have a really exciting. Uh, problem to work on, you know, like what is the dark matter of the universe or, you know, how do we cure cancer or, you know, really challenging problems. And uh, climate is not that at all. It's um, how do we reinforce the political narrative, you know, to completely change uh, the way the world works, the way the world economy works. And uh, there's only a limited number of people who want to make a career doing that. So what what are some of the... Um... The major issues that are being raised that are not what they say they are, you know, uh, the world's going to end in eight years or whatever number they picked or, you know, we're, we're headed for a disaster. It's an emergency. Why are people saying that? And what is the, the reality of it, according to you? Well, the reality is, you know, they uh, are worried about greenhouse gases and the most important human caused greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide. And, you know, so. They have uh, managed to label carbon dioxide a, a pollutant. It baffles me how, how people can swallow that because carbon dioxide is really the gas of life. You know, you, the world runs on carbon dioxide. We're made of carbon. We, every human being exhales about two pounds of carbon dioxide a day. That's a lot of carbon dioxide when you multiply by 8 billion people or roughly what the population of Earth is. And... Uh, Plants can't live without carbon dioxide. Plants are more productive now than they were 50 years ago just because of the modest increase of carbon dioxide we've already had. And we're still way, way below the 
normal levels of carbon dioxide that have prevailed over most of geological history and, and where plants would prefer to be. You know, plants- yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. That's what yeah. I was going to ask you. If you put in, if you look over long-term climate data, like how long, how long term of climate data do we have? And where are we in that context? Are we at a, a very low point in terms of carbon dioxide levels and other factors, or are we at a high point? Like where are we we're, historically? Yeah, you know, we're practically at famine levels for carbon dioxide. The, if you look, say, over the last uh, 500 million years or so, the Phanerozoic, they call it, is the time when you, they're pretty good fossils, so you get an idea of how evolution is going from the fossil record. Over that 500 years, 500 million years, the average CO2 levels have been several thousand parts per million, not, you know, 280 or whatever it was pre-industrial. And uh, these levels are very close to the levels at which uh, plants starve to death. Plants really start dying off if you get below 150 parts per million. Uh, And there's some evidence of some plant die off during the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago because the CO2 levels dropped so low. You know, when the earth gets colder, the oceans get colder, more CO2 gets absorbed into the ocean and there's less available for plants to live on. So current levels are really exceptionally low by the standards of geological history. And so instead of being alarmed about more CO2, we should be very happy, you know, it's one of the uh, blessings of uh, fossil fuels, uh, quite aside from their usefulness in transportation and running the modern world, uh, they are making plants grow better uh, by providing more CO2. Greenhouse operators, you know, routinely double or triple CO2 levels inside the greenhouse. And, you know, it's not free. You have to pay for the CO2, you know, and uh, they wouldn't do it if it didn't pay off in in better quality flowers and vegetables and whatever they're producing in the greenhouse. Tomatoes, for example. You know, if you get a tomato in a grocery store today, most likely it's been grown in a greenhouse that's been heavily you know, fertilized with CO2, two or three times the CO2 than uh, uh, what's outside in in the open air. And they look beautiful, you know, the tomatoes. I'm sure you've seen how nice they look now in grocery stores and the hothouse tomatoes. And part of the reason for that is the high levels of CO2 inside the hothouse. And that's one of the reasons you can actually tell whether CO2 has been enhanced in your tomato. (laughs) Because if you analyze the carbon 13 to carbon 12 in your, you know, grocery store tomato, you will find that it has a lot less carbon 13 than the uh, CO, the tomatoes grown in the open field. And from that isotope ratio, you can infer that they've been grown in a hothouse where the CO2 has come from burning fossil fuels. <laughs> so, and then injecting the fossil fuel CO2 into the hothouse. Fossil fuel CO2 has a lot less carbon-13 in it than does the normal CO2 in the air above us. Well, how, how does that affect plant growth, that changed ratio? It doesn't, 13 as well? doesn't make any difference to how they grow, but it's a nice way to tag where they got their CO2. And okay. Another interesting thing about that is that plants um, selectively uh, enhance carbon-12 in their organic material, but uh, that's more extreme in, in the great majority of uh, old-fashioned C3 plants, you know, that have the simplest photosynthetic way of uh, photosynthesizing, then uh, a newfangled 
set of plants called C4 plants. Uh, C4 plants typically grow in the tropics where it's very hot and where, where low CO2 levels are a problem. And uh, so they are, they're more efficient in using both carbon isotopes. So they tend to have more carbon-13 than C3 plants. And an interesting sidelight to that is uh, that that's a way for you to check your sugar, household sugar. Is this cane sugar or is it uh, beet sugar? Uh, you know, you can't really tell the difference. I mean, the chemistry is the same. The taste is the same. There's no obvious difference. But one difference that's very clear is if you look at the carbon-13 ratios, there's a lot more carbon-13 in cane sugar, which is a C4 plant, than in beet sugar, which is a C3 plant. <laughs> so that, there's lots of fascinating uh, science, uh, physics, chemistry that's involved in all of you know, involved in carbon dioxide and how plants grow. And But one thing you should never forget is that carbon dioxide is not a pollutant at all. You know, we should thank the Almighty for carbon dioxide. It's good for the planet. More of it will be better for the planet. So what do you think would happen if, um, you know, all the climate alarmists just shut up and things kept going as they are, you know, over the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? What what do you think levels would go to and what do you think would be the resultant effects? Well, you know, if you look at the rate level, CO2 is increasing now. It, it's it's around two parts per million per year, two and a half maybe. And uh, it's going to continue to increase because uh, most of the world is going to use fossil fuels for at least the next century. There's nothing you can do about that because uh, not to do that is basically a suicide pact, you know, and uh, there will be, you know, literally billions of people would die if you stop using fossil fuels. You can't do it, you know, especially for... uh, you know, applications like fertilizer. They recently tried that in Sri Lanka, you know, banned chemical fertilizers and the government was thrown out about a year ago because there was, you know, massive crop failures. You know, you couldn't run agriculture in Sri Lanka any anymore without chemical fertilizers. And that's true around the world. So there are just horrendous consequences of uh, banning fossil fuels that, uh, people are not going to take. You know, it doesn't matter what the elites demand. (laughs) You know, the average person wants to live and they can't live if they do what the elites demand. I don't know what the elites think. They, many of them say, uh, well, the world is overpopulated. There are too many of these, uh, you know, knuckle dragging climate deniers out there. Let's get rid of them where the earth can only support a billion people, and we've got eight billion, so uh, seven out of eight of us has to have to disappear. And, you know, what better way to do that than mass famine? I mean, they don't, they don't yeah, have yeah. to say that, but that will be a and, consequence and of, of uh, fuels. Yeah, and of course, they're not included in the, in the remaining one billion, you know, everyone else. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. 
Yeah, that's right. They, they'll be part of the elite one billion remaining. That's right. All the rest of us will be gone. Right. So again, if we just leave it alone and stop crying about all, all this stuff and, you know, again, what, what does it look like in uh, 20 years or 50 years time in terms of, you know, green percent of the earth in terms of uh, ability to produce food in terms of, you know, carbon dioxide levels and their implications on health of, let's say, animals and people, not just plants. Like, what does it look like? What does the world look like? Well, I think the world will look very much better if we continue to emit CO2. As I said, it's being emitted at about two parts per million per year. So in, in a century, 100 years, uh, that's 200 parts per million. So we may go up to 600 parts per million. We're a little over 400 now. It or maybe it'll be 700, you know, because uh, we'll use a little bit more as a result of uh, people in Africa and India uh, attaining the same high standards of living that uh, North America, Europe, Japan, and China have today. And you can't do that without more use of fossil fuels. So I don't know, maybe it'll go to 700 in a century. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's very good for agriculture but it has no uh, negative effects that I can think of. All of the effects will be good. You know, what, what they claim is that, uh, oh, no, you know, the, the whole climate will collapse. You know, there will be massive global warming. Uh, this used to be called global warming, you know, 20 years ago, but it was already clear, you know, by 2000, you know, 2010, that the warming was much less than the climate models were predicting. So this was very, very embarrassing. You know, how are you going to keep the alarm going when the observations are so completely different from the alarmist predictions? And so they changed the name, they're good marketers. So now it's climate change. And so now every time there's a big thunderstorm or a hail, you know, <laughs> damage to a crop, whatever, it's all due to climate change. And it's all due to burning fossil fuels. It's very much like the, uh, you know, the witch burning craze, you know, in, in medieval Europe, you know, and that was driven in part by bad weather then. It was the little ice age. There was a lot of crop failure because it was cooling. You know, cooling is bad for humanity. <laughs> you know, crops fail when it cools, warms up, you get better crops. And so they blamed witches. And so, you know, thousands of innocent women were hanged or burned at the stake for supposedly ruining the climate. You can look it up. It's true. And uh, so now, thank goodness, we're not burning witches. But, uh, you know, demonizing carbon dioxide is perhaps even worse. You know, if we do everything that's demanded, you know, to uh, stop CO2 increases. Yeah, when, you know, I've heard a number of people say, oh, storms are worsening and getting more frequent. And then I've heard, you know, people with actual data saying, Actually, the deaths and the damage from storms has gone down and they're not going up at all. They may, in fact, be decreasing. Like what, what do you observe? Yeah, you have to make a, a distinction between uh, the uh, incidents of storms and damages. You know, of course, damages are going up. They're, you can easily see that. But the reason for that is that people are wealthy and so they buy a vacation, a beachfront home, you know, and then the next hurricane comes along and it washes away their home. And so that's a lot of damage. The damage would not have been there if the hurricane had come 50 years ago or 100 years ago because nobody uh, could afford to build houses along the beach where everyone knew that there was a hurricane every 10 years or so. You know, we've been having hurricanes in the East Coast of the United States since uh, uh, forever. You know, you can tell that from proxy records. Uh, 
Also, historical records from the last few hundred years are quite good. You know, the worst hurricane we ever had was uh, 1779 or some, you know, within a year. I don't remember exactly the year, but it was during the American Revolution, you know, killed 20,000 people. And that was a time when there was practically nobody living, you know, in North America along the East Coast. So today that would be millions of people killed by this hurricane, it was so intense that it stripped, you know, all the bark off the trees in the Caribbean. You know, the trees were had white trunks because of the uh, loss of bark during the hurricane. And it, uh, it wiped out a good fraction of the British and the French fleet. And uh, it was very handy for the U.S. because it, it weakened the British Navy quite a bit. And it was one of the things that let the French help us you know, uh, administer the coup de grace, you know, at the end of the revolution, you know, to Cornwallis and Yorktown, you know, the French, bless their hearts, blockaded the mouth of the river there that would have uh, given Cornwallis a chance to escape. And it, it was all tied in with the previous year's hurricane. The British didn't realize that the French had rebuilt their fleet as effectively as they did. And so it was too late for them to uh, correct the mistake. Cornwallis surrendered, and that was the end of the war in America, <laughs> but it was closely connected with climate. So what, what kind of arguments or attacks have you heard that actually maybe have some veracity to them or some credence to them versus being baseless? Like what are some common debate points that you've come up with when you've interacted with, you know, with other people regarding climate? Well, you know, most of the climate professionals won't debate anyone who knows anything about climate, you know, they, they will say the you know, the science is settled, we don't debate settled science. And um, so it's not easy to have a debate, there have been a, a few, you know, and uh, my hat's off to the people on the alarmist side that they're willing to debate, you know, that's a very uh, good thing for them to do, it shows that they have some integrity, but most don't have it. Uh, I, I don't think they have any real arguments, uh, scientific arguments uh, to support, you know, their alarmism. You know, there are real problems in the world today that uh, we should be tackling. And uh, they're much bigger than climate, which is a non-problem. You know, there's the biggest one of all is, you know, how, how do you get people to live uh, in peace and harmony with each other? You know, the just look around the world, you know, everywhere you look, you know, there's uh, wars going on, people fighting each other, you know, discriminating against each other, you know, there are all sorts of difficulties. They have nothing to do with CO2 or climate. They have to do with the human character. And so if we really wanted to solve the long-term problems of humanity, we should be working on uh, these age-old uh, conflicts that, uh, you know, so many great religions, for example, have tried to solve, you know, philosophers have tried to solve. They're, they're tough problems. But the, well, I, I agree with you. Um, I guess just keeping it with, again, the, the, the points on climate, you know, what people call uh, solar or, or wind green energy. But yet, in order to assemble the rare earths to make, you know, wind turbines and to make solar panels and all that, you need to use fossil fuels and then to manufacture them and transport them and put them in service and service them and repair them and fix them. And so how can people call that, for instance, like green energy or carbon zero? It's just, it makes absolutely no sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, it, it, it greatly increases the cost of electricity and it makes it less reliable. And if you're 
really insist on running a system like that, it basically means uh, building a fossil fuel backup plant for every wind turbine or every, you know, solar, you know, farm, uh, because the sun goes down at night, you know, there's no way we can stop that. Uh, although one shouldn't tempt politicians, you know, they pass laws for all sorts of crazy things. Maybe they'll pass a law saying that the shine the sun should shine for 24 hours. I, I wouldn't put it past them. But uh, in reality, it doesn't. And the wind doesn't blow all the time. So the only way you can really back this up is with fossil fuels. You can't store enough power in batteries in any economic way to make up for the uh, times when the wind doesn't blow. Sometimes it's weeks at a time or every day when the sun goes down. So none of it makes any economic sense, and it only exists because of political mandates. You know, it's it's by fiat, by uh, completely uh, clueless uh, politicians. You know, you know, yeah, there are admirable politicians, uh, uh, some exceptions, but many politicians, you know, they uh, they've never done a, any real work in their lives. You know, they you know they got into politics young. You know, and that's been their career, and so. They've never uh, added to the benefits of mankind, you know, the way some guy who delivers your groceries does or a doctor who takes care of your health or, you know, the trucker who moves your uh, food from the field to the grocery stores. There are lots of honest people who make the world go round. And uh, but they're not the ones that are making these crazy decisions, you know, in the halls of power. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, like for instance, I just took a trip with my family. We drove through Colorado and New Mexico. We drove through hundreds of miles of really, really windy, you know, desolate areas. And I saw a total of four windmills and none of them were functioning or moving. Yeah. I saw a few like solar arrays and they were all pointed the wrong way based on the sun. They couldn't move with the sun. So it just seemed like a gigantic waste and, and just absolutely ridiculous. Like, if this is so important, if this is so, if this is viable, why isn't anyone capitalizing on the wind and the sun? And the, it just makes no sense. It just seems like all just, I don't know, a smokescreen. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to understand. I, I, I agree with you. And uh, but, you know, if you look over human history uh, again and again, human societies do crazy things. And um, there's this old uh, saying from the ancients, you know, whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. And that's happened many times, you know, whole societies go mad and it's, it's quite difficult to bring them back. So where do you see this? Uh, where do you see things going? I mean, is it uh, the climate crazy is going to just run into reality and are they going to just quietly stop talking about this stuff? Or like, what, what do you see ahead for maybe the next, literally the next year or two now that, uh, you know, the, the politicians and governments of the world are really like crippling everyone's ability to, to produce energy? Where do you see this going? Well, I, I think that there will be uh, additional situations like the one in Sri Lanka a few years ago, uh, earlier this year, about a year ago, where the whole society is destroyed, you know, by environmental fanatics. And uh, it will be more influential because Sri Lanka is a little country that nobody in most of the world knows very much about. But if it happens in Germany or if it happens in the state of California or Great Britain, you know, everybody will know about it. So, for example, if Europe is unlucky and this is a harsh winter, they're really uh, hurting for energy supplies. And uh, there could be uh, tremendous uh, 
political unrest because of the uh, inconveniences uh, and the hardships that the uh, people in Germany or Britain or other places face, you know, because of not enough fuel to keep, you know, keep society running. So uh, I, unfortunately, I, I think this probably will have to uh, go to the ridiculous extreme where great damage is done to some society, hopefully not to the whole world, but, but to some small part of it, and that the lessons from that will finally be learned and everybody else will say, well, oh, we're on the wrong path here. Let, let's make some course corrections because look what happened to country A, you know, which is in shambles now because of uh, what they did in response to environmental extremism. Yeah, so I guess you, do you, do you see any nations that uh, you think are going to be the first to go? Like you said, we've seen Sri Lanka completely fall apart and now deindustrializing. You know, are there any major Western nations you think that are, in, let's say, the most trouble? It seems like maybe, from my vantage point, uh, Germany, uh, maybe the UK. Germany is at know. risk. That's right. They they were counting on Russian gas to bail them out. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you shouldn't uh, underestimate how competent the Germans are. You know, I think quite quickly, if the need should arise, they could uh, re start a number of coal plants. Yeah, they still have lots of uh, brown coal and uh, they could uh, make up for the shortfalls. Uh, and nobody's better at doing that than the Germans. They, they are very, very talented. And uh, and I think they could do it if they had to. Britain, is, Britain typically is a little bit more muddled than Germany. So they might have a harder time if, if uh, all of a sudden, it's clear that uh, they can't get the gas they need. You know, they run the United Kingdom on gas now, and, and gas is running out. And uh, because of green pressure, they're unable to tap the enormous reserves that the whole island is sitting on. They have, you know, great reserves of gas in the shale under parts of Great Britain. But because of environmental opposition, it, it, they cannot do the same fracking that we've been doing in the United States that has. Uh, brought out gas in abundance. Yeah. You know, U.S. has good shale, so it's easy to do that, but there, there's uh, comparable shale in other parts of the world that could be used uh, if it were not for this sort of fanatical opposition of the green uh, left. So what, what would be a, a, a recommendation from you or a plan to, uh, I mean, it's just, it just seems so overwhelming. I mean, there's, there's, I don't know how many pundits, news agencies, politicians, it's like everyone's like, oh, everyone knows that the climate is falling apart and it's an emergency. You know, how do we overcome that? How do we turn the tide back? Well, I don't know. You know, I've often tried to understand how this would end by looking at uh, things like the witch hysteria in medieval times in our country, in the United States. Uh, we had these Salem witch trials, you know, and all of the witch trial judges had Harvard degrees. So it wasn't run by, uh, you know, unshaven backwood rubes it was run by the elite you know the best and the brightest and um it was clearly phony then you know and the common people were quite skeptical skeptical about the witch trials whether there even was such a thing as a witch but you know how could you argue with someone with a phd in theology from harvard and uh so um what brought it to an end was uh there was so much hysteria that everyone was accused of being a witch. And it was pretty clear that some of the judges themselves would be next to hang if this didn't get stopped pretty soon. 
So the wiser heads there finally said, well, we can't uh, go on like this. And besides the main uh, evidence has been, uh, you know, spectral evidence that somebody had a dream that their neighbor was a witch, you know, and, and you know, what more do you need? You know, they had this clear dream. It must have been from the good Lord, you know, and so hang the witch. It didn't seem to come to their notice that, you know, when the witch was hanged, that the uh, accuser got their property, you know, so, you know, it was profoundly corrupt, as all of these things are. But in, in, in Massachusetts, they finally just banned uh, the use of the spectral evidence. And without spectral evidence, you couldn't convict anyone, you know, because there was no hard evidence of witchcraft, none at all. And there's no hard evidence of any damage to the climate from fossil fuels either. The only evidence is from feverish computer projections, you know, and nice computer displays, you know, and vivid colors of red and orange, which show the earth burning up. But that's actually not what the earth is doing. And it won't do that. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think it will. I think it will end. It has to end because uh, as I've mentioned before, if, if it goes on, it's basically mass suicide. So we can't do it. Well, hopefully not. There may be uh, a significant amount of mass suicide, you know, because of the uh, the elites. But um, yeah, that's why I'm wondering when the, when there'll be a big turning point, or hopefully there will be before things get too bad. But um, yeah, it's not good news. Um, what, what do you recommend for people to actually educate themselves and at least look at both sides of the issue instead of just believing one or the other? Well, you know, I, th I think a big part of the problem is uh, science illiteracy. So mo most uh, Americans don't know very much science, and uh, they know even less mathematics. And so they're easily uh, misled, you know, by purveyors of nonsense. You know, the, the saviors, saviors of the planet claim that they're basing what they do on science. In fact, it's not science at all. It's just made up science, but how are you supposed to know that if you don't know any science yourself? So I think anything that makes people pay a little more attention to science and forces them to learn more science, even simple science, would help a lot. The, the media has been terrible, you know, because it's got uh, lots of reporters, uh, other media people who make their living on uh, alarmism, you know, any kind of alarmism. If it, you know, bleeds, it leads. And so what better than a bleeding planet, you know, that's about to be boiled to death by emissions of CO2 from fossil fuel. So uh, another thing you should remember if you're my fellow citizen is uh, don't believe everything that you hear in the, <laughs> in the media. Uh, the establishment media is, is particularly bad, but, you know, any media, you know, you should check yourself to the best that you can on scientific matter, any other matter for that, as far as that goes. I, I would say also common sense, you know, uh, if most, it's maybe a little harder to have common sense today than it used to be, but it, it's striking when you uh, talk to people, uh, those from rural backgrounds, you know, from farming areas or people who work outside, none of them believe any of this stuff about climate disaster because they've seen the climate up close and personal all their lives. They know perfectly well that it naturally has good times and bad times and that it is out of their control. So they completely understand that on a very intuitive level, you know, but the elite, you know, which has uh, been, you know, young people who've been brought up in luxury and, you know, suburban abundance and uh, sent 
to prep schools and, you know, never hold a row of corn or delivered a, you know, a load on a truck or run a tractor. None, none of them have any sense of what the real world is like. You know, their sense of what the world is like is uh, what they see on computer screens or uh, re- read about in slick books, you know, and uh, or what their friends tell them, you know, uh, other overprivileged uh, people, you know, from the suburbs, the wealthy suburbs. Uh, so often wondered about, uh, you know, the China, Chinese Cultural Revolution. Um, it was a terrible thing, you know, it caused enormous damage. But one part of it that I always was interested in is uh, uh, Mao first forced all the uh, elite to go out and spend a couple of years farming, you know, out there with the manure and and, and the plants and things like that. And, uh, you know, maybe that wasn't such a bad idea, you know, that, you know, maybe uh, some of our elites should do something mm-hmm. like that. Oh, is there any evidence that um, forcing the elites to do farm work improved their perspective or were they just resentful of, you know, what they had to do? Well, it, it would certainly make them resentful, uh, but, uh, there's a reason for that, you know, that uh, if you've never had to do real work, your judgment will never be very good. And um, I mean, there, there are other ways that you could do that. I, I think, for example, the, the Peace Corps was that was the basic idea was get people out and let them do something that's useful, you know, preferably in a rural area where uh, they can um, see what the real world is like. And, and maybe there will be some useful Results, you know, I think in many cases the uh, the Peace Corps experience did a lot more for the uh, volunteers who went out to serve than it did for the people they served. The people they served, in many cases, I think, were the teachers, you know, not the Peace Corps workers. Um, but there was some uh, benefit the other way too. Certainly, teaching people to read and to calculate is uh, a huge uh, benefit for them. Uh, but learning from them what real life is like is also a benefit to you. So um, so it doesn't have to be a a cultural revolution, but uh, people should, I think, experience the real world more than they do, more than they have an opportunity to do today. It's not their fault. We don't give them the opportunity. Yeah, it makes sense. It definitely makes sense. Well, very good. William, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and your commentary and your papers? Where can they go? The best place to learn about you know, the truth on CO2 is the CO2 Coalition. It's a website, co2coalition.org. If you Google on it, you'll find it immediately. And uh, it's a quite honest uh, educational uh, organization. And uh, have a look. You know, you'll learn a lot if you read a little bit of what's there. Okay, so CO2 CO2 Coalition, yeah, co2coalition.org. If you Google on it, it'll, it'll come up. Along with, of course, okay. lots, lots of hate, hate articles about what a terrible organization it is. But they, you know, the old saying, if you're uh, not taking flack, you're not over the target. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and explaining. And I, I love your use of history and metaphor and all that to, you know, to inform what you're talking about. So thank you for being here. Okay. Keep up your good work. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.